Hi, I'm Father Daniel Duplantis, a Catholic priest, martial artist, and host of the Karate Priest Podcast. Have you ever wondered what the Church teaches about different topics? Are you a martial arts enthusiast or just someone who wants to learn more about martial arts? I'd like to invite you to join me and many guests on my podcast as we cover topics of faith, everyday living, and martial arts on the Karate Priest Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to A Catholic's Perspective with the Religious Hippie. As you can tell, I am not the religious hippie. This is Father <laughs> Daniel DePlant as the karate priest. And I'm here giving the introduction because Amber can't get her act together. <laughs> Amber, how are you today? <laughs> this is going to be my favorite introduction ever. I know it. Well, this is the last episode of season three. So <laughs> this is, I love how we usually start every season with each other and then we end it with each other. Today is just not the vibe. I've already had too much coffee. The caffeine is flowing through my veins. My brain cannot keep up with my mouth. It's, it's not fun. I mean, it's Valentine's Day. You probably got a little special somebody on the mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I wish people could see our faces right now. <laughs> well today's episode because it's the last episode of season three kind of sad but season four is coming back in uh, august of 2023 so fret not i know it seems like it's been it was like yesterday when we started like this podcast you know the religious hippie and a catholic's perspective like it was actually like almost four years ago isn't that crazy well three years ago that's so insane just over three no just over two, because it was December or around November, December 2020, where we recorded our first episode together. That's right. Um, yep. Just yep. a little bit over like two-ish. Yeah. But it's absolutely ridiculous to me. I'm like, what? Time is flying. Yes. It's it's just absolutely crazy. And today we're kind of just doing a review of, you know, what's gone, what's kind of happened over the last, you know, couple months in 2022. And um. So I guess we'll start with you. I guess uh, you got your Tung Sudo black belt. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Um, so that was uh, quite an, you know, another accomplishment in my martial arts career. Uh, so just a little bit of background with that. Um, Tung Sudo is the predecessor art to Taekwondo. Um, so just, you know, very briefly, what happened was um, if you go back to the early 20th century, uh, Japan occupied the Korean Peninsula from 19, uh, 1910 to 1945-ish, something like that, um, up through the end of World War II. And when, uh, when they occupied Korea, uh, the Japanese did not let the Koreans practice, practice their native martial arts. Uh, they could only practice, if they were allowed to practice any arts, only allowed to practice the Japanese ones. So that would be uh, karate and judo and things like that. Um, so you had several Koreans who, you know, traveled abroad. They left Korea during the occupation. They went to China, learned Kung Fu. They went to Japan and also learned um, karate. And then they came back to Korea after the war and opened up their own schools and were teaching. Um, essentially, most of them were teaching karate. They were teaching Japanese karate, but using Korean terminology, um, Korean commands, all that stuff. And so Tang Sudo was the name that was kind of given to that, um, to, in, which is, is a, a way of translating karate do. Um, there's all kind of like, you know, word plays between the names between, you know, the, the Hangul and all the different languages. And, um, but essentially what happened was, um, you know, in the wake of the Korean War, the Korean government wanted to, the South Korean government wanted to unify all these martial arts schools. Um, into one unified curriculum and say, this is the Korean martial art to present to the world. And that's now what we know as Taekwondo. Um, 
And so um, my background's in Taekwondo and, and uh, the organization we joined recently with our school um, is an organization that teaches both Taekwondo and Tangsudo as one kind of continuous, this is what was taught by our Kwan before the merger and after the merger. Um, and so I was given the opportunity to, if I learn their forms and learn their self-defense, since I, you know, a lot of our, our basics are the same to test for my, my, I thought I was testing for a first degree black belt um, in Tong Sudo, and they end up surprising me with a double promotion uh, after a grueling four hour examination, uh, which was the most physically challenging thing I've ever done. Um, I remember you sending me pictures and you had like bruises everywhere and you were really yep. sore. Yep, I was the day afterwards, you know, riding back from Orlando, Florida, which is about a nine hour drive to Louisiana. Um, I I could hardly move. It hurt to move anything, um, but it was so worth it. I, I totally do it all over again. Uh, maybe not anytime soon, but I would. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was just, you know, a huge accomplishment to say now I have, you know, black belts in Taekwondo and Tang Sudo. Um, and, and now, you know, trying to teach both, um, mm. both system. And it's amazing just, you know, um, uh, how many more martial artists that has connected me to uh, in learning Tang Sudo to visit the local Tang Sudo school in Homa here in Louisiana, you know, get to know them. And, and they've welcomed me with open arms as, you know, kind of a go between, you know, between our two schools. Um, right. It's been really awesome. So we're trying to get together at some point to do some joint training with them. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's just really exciting, you know, time for me in my martial arts career. And, you know, and also I'll be testing for my fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo in June. Um, so I'm kind of getting ready for that. So it's like shifting gears from, from Tong Sudo to Taekwondo and getting ready for that. And, um, that will be here before I know it, but I mean, this is going to be like the real kind of crowning achievement of my martial arts career because fourth degree, um, for both Taekwondo and Tong Sudo is considered, um, master status. Mm. Uh, and so it, it, you know, for us with, with Jido Kwan Taekwondo, we even get, um, we get to wear a different uniform top. Uh, our belt looks a little bit different. There's a red stripe that goes down the middle of the belt, which is kind of barred from the uh, the, uh, the Tang Sudo tradition. Um, and so uh, it's, this is a huge thing. I mean, you know, I've had my sights set on fourth degree from the time I first started uh, training in martial arts because that's what my first instructor was, was a fourth right. degree. And so for me, it's like if I hit fourth, anything afterwards is just extra. But fourth has always been the goal. Uh, and I'm just I'm just months away from it at this point. That's exciting. Now, Father Dan, do you have a specific martial artist that you look up to from a young age or even now, like Bruce Lee or I don't know. I don't know anybody. I know Jackie Chan. I, 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 I do like Jackie Chan. He's I mean, he's the one that if I watch one growing up, um, it was Jackie Chan. And there's a bunch out there. I mean, Chuck Norris is one of the most famous Hollywood actors who um, who did Tang Sudo. I mean, he's the one who made Tang Sudo popular in the United States. Chuck um, Norris looks like a brick. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but Jackie Chan was certainly, you know, growing up watching his movies was my favorite martial artist because it's just, the, there was a, a humor in the way that he does things as well. Uh, but you could tell he's, he's quite the athlete. He's quite the martial artist. Um, and, uh, and it was funny last night I was watching, um, on TikTok, it was a little, you know, video of him critiquing, um, stunts. Um, mm -hmm. and if he thought they would pause a stunt video halfway through and he'd have to guess whether or not the stunt would fail or it would succeed. And it's funny to kind of watch him kind of break down and just watch him critique, you know, oh, this, he's not, he's not running fast enough. He's not going to make it, you know? And, um, so yeah, Jackie Chan, I think would definitely be my, uh, favorite, uh, Hollywood martial artist. Well, Jackie Chan, I believe he does all of his own stunts. Does he not? 
Yeah, he does. Right. Yeah. So that's like a whole like other thing. Cause if you get hurt, like you really have to know what you're doing. Stunt doubles are there to make sure that the actors don't get hurt. But if you're doing your own stunts, like you better know what you're doing. <laughs> oh yeah. And even, you know, for the karate kid and, um, for Cobra Kai, um, like, Ralph Macchio, who plays Daniel LaRusso, mm -hmm. Ralph, I don't think besides in the movies, never did any kind of martial arts training outside of it. Um, whereas uh, William Zabka, who plays Johnny Lawrence, um, got up to, I think, a green belt in Tang Sudo. But, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Robert Ian Griffin. I think it's his name. Robert Ian Griffith. Um, he's the guy who plays um, Terry Silver. And he actually, that actor actually has black belts in Kempo karate uh, and Taekwondo. So he is an actual professional martial artist, uh, which is so cool to watch Terry Silver whenever he's in fight scenes because he is a professionally trained martial artist. Right. No, that's incredible. I just, I was always intrigued by shows like that because those were shows like my dad grew up on, you know, like the Karate Kid and stuff like that. And I always was interested in those shows. And I was, of course, in karate too growing up, you know, it was good exercise and it taught us yeah. discipline and things like that. We were also in gymnastics and dance and soccer and like a lot of things to keep us active. Um, but I really loved, you know, Taekwondo. I'm, am I saying that right? Mm. Taekwondo. 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 Whatever. Whichever. Taekwondo. So I was in, <laughs> I was in that from a young age, and I really loved our instructors and things like that. But then we switched, in, we switched instructors, and they were really mean, and they pushed you a little bit too hard. And as a kid, it felt very uncomfortable, so we ended up quitting which was kind of sad because I feel like I really could have gone far with it and gotten a black belt and things like that. Cause we did enjoy it. You know, uh, we got to run really fast, you know, for warm ups and we got to do jumping jacks and it, you know, you learn things and you know, like how to hit properly and you know, how to hold a fist so you don't break your thumb and just like all of these fun things that as a kid, I was really interested in, but the instructor really does make a difference. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's been my experience growing up too, is just the different instructors I've had. And, and I've learned different things under each one. You know, it's amazing how each one comes with a different perspective that, you know, in, at each different, and it's funny because for every black belt I've ever tested for, you know, whether it be my three degrees in Taekwondo or even now my Tong Sudo black belt, um, every black belt test was proctored for me by a different black belt, a different instructor. And, I, and there were certain things that I learned from each one throughout that process. And so it is unique to have, you know, um, different instructors and uh, yeah really helps you grow in, in 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 so many ways we love that and yeah so it's a huge accomplishment that you got your chung sudo um, belt and everything like that now you're going for your fourth degree black belt that's incredible yep. I know. um and that's in june you said but in july you're going on active duty right right which is why the test is in june <laughs> <laughs> which makes sense yeah having to wrap everything up in june Yep. Could you tell the listeners what active duty means, like what that would look like for you? Because I'm not sure if anybody knows exactly what that yeah, is. So the last um, almost seven years now, I've been in the Air Force Reserve as a chaplain candidate. Uh, and so the way that that has worked is when I got accepted to graduate seminary um, is I commissioned as a second lieutenant. And so this was back in 2016 that I first commissioned. Um and, you know, throughout your time in the seminary, you do, uh, you go to officer training school, you do a couple of follow-on tours. So I did a few of those. Um, and then when you graduate the program, like you get ordained for your religious entity and you then um, you get ordained, you graduate, uh, they give you a certificate of completion for the candidate program. 
And then you can either go into the reserves as a chaplain uh, or you can go, uh, you do like what I did and, and you wait until you go active duty because my agreement with the military archdiocese is that my diocese got me for the first three years. And then I would go active duty for at least five. Um, so 2023 was always the date that I had circled on my calendar almost for the last decade, knowing that this was the process, um, you know, and uh, and it's amazing that, you know, it's it's almost here. Um, and so I will be uh, released from my diocese to go full time active duty in the Air Force. So I'll be full time on a base uh, serving as a chaplain, as a priest. Uh, so basically, I would be um, the pastor of the Catholic parish on base uh, and then. Um, you know, doing all kind of unit visitation, things like that, a lot of counseling. Um, so, uh, but that will be my, my life and my vocation for at least the next five years. Um, and that begins in July. So right now we're doing all the paperwork process, which is <laughs> um, uh, infuriating at sometimes to say the least, you know, where, you know, it's, it's a lot of forms to fill out. The, uh, the big thing is that my scrolling is done, um, which is always the most time consuming part of the process where they actually put your name I don't know if it's a physical scroll or a digital one, but there's a some kind of scroll that they put your name on and they fill up the scroll with names of every officer um, who's applying to to be uh, accessed onto some kind of duty in, in the Air Force. I don't know if, if any of the other branches do it this way, but that scroll is filled up, which is why it takes so long. They wait till the scroll is full. They send that scroll of names to the Armed Forces Committee uh, in the Senate. That Senate, uh, the Senate committee reads those names in committee meeting, and then they vote to either approve or, um, or, or not approve the scroll, which I think they always approve it anyway, um, as a whole. And then those officers are selected for their positions, and then you just got to finish out the paperwork process. Um, right now, I have to go do a couple of medical things to get up to date, but that's really the last big part of this is to do medical and, um, and then just uh, find out where I'm going, which I don't know yet. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, that's everyone's big question. They know when I'm leaving. We just don't know where I'm going. Right. Um, and so that's the big question. Certainly the most anxious thing I'm waiting to find out is where I'm going. Um, and because I'm going to have to start making arrangements once I figure that out, you know, start house shopping, uh, which is something I, most priests don't ever have to do. Um, you know, do I live on base or live off base? I'll have that choice. You know, I have to actually, um, you know, depending on what housing I get, I'm going to have to buy things like pots and pans and stuff, which I'm <laughs> normally used to my rectory kitchens already having and not having to buy all that stuff. Um, so I'm going to be living by myself for the most part. So um, there's a lot of things that most ordinary priests are, um, you know, don't have to worry about that I'm going to have to start looking into. Um, so it's kind of exciting at the same time. It's uh, making me very anxious of, you know, oh my gosh, like, how am I going to do all this? You know, um, but, you know, thankfully, I have several good priests who are already on active duty um, to kind of walk me through this process, give me tips along the way. Uh, and so, yeah, that's about where I'm at with that. Yeah, I was going to say the anticipation of it all is probably what's more uh, scary than the actual prospect of having to do it itself. I know that we've talked on our previous episode about, you know, Catholics in the military. We talked about your experience and everything like that. Do you know roughly like how many soldiers to priests there are because i know there is a huge decline in catholic chaplains in military bases like they're the most needed right i want to say it's uh oh gosh one thousand servicemen for every one catholic priest who's on that um that's just servicemen that's not including their families um i think that's the number it could be even more than that um but like, you know, one of the last numbers I heard was 
uh, like 25% of the entire armed forces is Roman Catholic, but only, uh, shoot, only is it like 6% of the chaplain corps Catholic priests? Like it's, the number's pretty bad. Wow. Um, like, you know, you would want your chaplain corps to be proportional to the number of Catholics. And it's just, we're not there. Um, right. You know, so it's, it's, it's definitely a huge need. Um, but that being said, Catholic parishes on military bases are some of your, your best thriving Catholic communities, um, at least in the United States, um, because they know how much faith means to them. They know the importance of receiving the sacraments. They've seen the difference when they get deployed downrange and they come back and, you know, uh, the difference that just a couple of masses makes if they get it, you know, or if they have a priest on that deployment, um, the difference that that makes. And so it is a huge ministerial need um and even though we have a shortage of priests in the united states um that shortage is felt probably most uh acutely uh on active duty right well especially because when you know i'm not sure if you're going to be sent out to like the field or anything like that specifically like in action type thing but i mean it could be a possibility if i'm not wrong you know but the thing is is that I was really like into World War II and World War I growing up and, you know, learning about these Catholic priests that would save people in gunfire, you know, they would be getting shot at and they would uh, try to bring people or give them last rites, you know, while they were in crossfire. And I think it's a very noble cause. And I, do you think the fact that not enough priests know about it, or maybe they're too afraid to go into the military or you know, or maybe it's just, I mean, I want to know why there's just like such a decline of like Catholic chaplains in the military. Um, it's, it's a lot of factors. Um, so right after 9-11, there was a surge. Mm. Now there was definitely a surge because there was a surge in all kinds of military fields, you know. Um, there was a desire, there was a resurgence in patriotism in general, uh, and more people signed up to serve in the wake of 9-11. Um, so, uh, but since then, you know, as the war on terror was, was declining, um, so was the chaplain corps, well, at least, at least the Catholic priests in the chaplain corps, um, but certainly also just with numbers of priests and vocations. So you have to look at, you know, first and foremost, a lot of dioceses are short on priests. Um, you know, we're getting to the point in my diocese where, um, you know, we're certainly getting stretched with who we have. Um, and, uh, like I, I'm as an associate pastor, I am constantly being asked to cover masses for priests when they go on vacation or go on retreat, because we don't have many associate pastors like me at this point, you know, um, there's not that many of us to go around to cover when our pastors are covering everything else at the parish. Um, so there, there's that, there's just the shortage in general. Um, perhaps there's an unwillingness of priests who just never really thought about it or just don't think it's important. Um, there's some priests who would love to do it, but they're not qualified. They're not like medically qualified. They wouldn't be able to clear uh, physicals and things like that. It is a very physically demanding job. Or even sometimes just bishops um, not being willing to send guys. And some bishops are so stretched in their own dioceses, you know, uh, with, with the needs that they have to put for the parishes. Um, like we have a diocese in Louisiana right now that there are several priests who have three parishes to pastor. Yeah. Uh, and that's not just one priest in that diocese. That's several priests in that predicament, you know? So there are some dioceses that just really cannot afford to give up a priest um, because that means that perhaps three parishes won't have a pastor. Which is so sad because if you think about it back in like the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, when I look at the statistics, then it was like one, like 12 priests for one parish. 
you know, and now it's like one priest for 12 parishes. It's, it's so heartbreaking to see such a decline in the religious life. And I mean, part of that could be because, you know, we live in just such a worldly type of world and it's so accessible now that people don't know how to suffer well. Maybe people don't have access to Catholicism because they were raised, you know, religionless, so to speak. You know, millennials have started doing that. They don't raise their children with a religion because they had religion pushed on them and they, quote unquote, don't want to terrorize their kids with religion. So these kids aren't even brought up knowing about God. And I do believe that when God calls somebody to, to the priesthood, whether they were raised Christian or not, they will find their way. But the thing is, is that I think it's more difficult today than ever to be a priest or religious, a nun, a sister, anything else. And I see a lot of um, convents absolutely thriving, but not the priesthood. Is is do you have you noticed that too, or is that just in my area? I think it depends on the area too. Um, you know, it, it's certainly there are some dioceses right now who are doing really phenomenal in terms of number of seminarians, and then there are just some that are that are not. You know, and. A lot of it is just making the resources available. Uh, a lot of it is helping guys and walking with guys um, through that process of discernment and, and giving them the resources there. Um, so, I mean, it's a multifaceted problem that we're facing right now. But, um, you know, I think, you know, what we're seeing in the priesthood right now is very encouraging going forward. Um, you know, I, at least in my diocese, we did not have very many ordinations at all in the first decade of the 2000s. Um, but since 2010, we've ordained, oh, shoot, um, <laughs> seems like almost half the active priests in our diocese. Wow. And that's, so we've had, we had a big boom in the last decade. Um, and, and it was beautiful, you know, so when we're trying to continue that trajectory going forward and, um, you know, so, but not every diocese has that. So. Right. And I think it's interesting because my parish at Cantius, you know, they were really struggling for a while trying to get, um, you know, people to become priests. And I remember back in, I think it was 2008, they had like 12 novices or something drop out because they just couldn't do it. But now they're like thriving. In fact, they're thriving so much that they have to split the canons regular between three different parishes. So they kind of like rotate, they do this rotational thing because there are so many of them where they're at Cantius and then they go to Volo and then they go to Springfield and then they come back to Cantius. So it's like every six months to a year, they rotate people out um, just to help, you know, keep, you know, so that the priests can get, you know, a new area and they can gain new relationships and reach out more. But I've noticed that that's really helped as well because there is such a wanton need for reverence in my generation. You know, we want it. We're craving it, though we don't always know that. And even though mass is mass and that's important and the Novus Ordo is valid and everything, and you do a wonderful, wonderfully beautiful Novus Ordo, and I've gone to beautiful Novus Ordos before, um, but those are very rare. You know, you just don't find that all the time. Um, and if you do find it, it's usually hush hush, you know, nobody wants to know about it or nobody tells about it because then you get ratted out to somebody and, you know, people complain. There's this whole thing. We had that at one of my parishes and now, unfortunately, it's modernized. Um, like they've dropped Jesus and nobody picked him up. Like he was just there on the floor until after communion. And then somebody came in with a napkin and picked him up. Yeah. You could see our faces right now. Well, they can't see our faces right now, but it's yes. just utter disgust because it's like, there's no 
how are we supposed to believe in the true presence if the priest is struggling to believe? And I think that priests especially need our prayers. I'm not saying this is all priests or anything, but all priests need our prayers, but I'm not saying all priests are irreverent or they don't believe in, in, but I do think they're struggling, you know, these days because they don't have a great church community, you know, having that community is really important because, you know, parishioners affect the priest and the priest affect parishioners. And there's this roundabout. And so, um, you know, you, it's kind of like that saying, like, you are who you, you are who you attract kind of, or you are what you eat and stuff. So if you're constantly around parishioners, especially boomer parishioners, no offense, but you know, you know what I'm talking about, who are always complaining about things. This isn't always boomers. This is young people too, but they're always complaining about like, oh, it's not modern enough. And there's guitars at mass and things like that. And so the priest will try to accommodate to bring more people in. But in reality, what we want is reverence and a backbone. You know, we don't want everything conform to what we want, you know, because it's not about us. It's about God and what is due to him and reverence and, and uh, the mass. And I think when we start making it about us, we lose that reverence and we lose that belief in the true presence. I, mean, I don't know. I went on a ramble there, but maybe that, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's a, a, all fair, very fair points. Uh, and, and I told you this too, um, in the last couple of days that, you know, we had uh, our priest convocation for my diocese last week. Um, and our specific topic that we were presented on when we got to hear from Dr. Brant Petrie, yeah. uh, who has always been just my favorite uh, scripture theologian for the last, um, uh, shoot, 12 years now. Um, professor of mine at the seminary, uh, also my second cousin once removed. Um, and uh, so we, he talked to specifically about the Eucharistic revival that the USCCB is doing for the next three years. Yeah. Um, it was just amazing, you know, for, for the priests of my diocese, like you could tell everybody was bought in mm. um, to what was happening. And, you know, we'd had the conference on the Eucharist and we had three conferences total. We'd have a conference on the Eucharist. Then we'd go into a communal holy hour or we go into mass and then holy hour in the evening, like, you know, depending how the schedule was, but like you could tell like in that first communal holy hour that we had just like the renewed sense of devotion we all had to the Eucharist. Like you could just feel it um, in that chapel uh, at the retreat center. And it was a really beautiful thing, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think that is very important for us as priests is, is for us to, and this was the, the phrase that we all kept um, that really struck all of us was the sense. And, and we heard this from the last three popes, talk about um, establishing the sense of Eucharistic amazement mm. and continuing in the Pope's saying specifically for priests to continue to foster Eucharistic amazement in ourselves. Because if we're not amazed by the Eucharist, how do we expect anybody else to be? Right. And he said that specifically to us because, you know, think like my situation, you know, I'm at the cathedral of my diocese, which is a sacrament factory um, because it's such a big parish. It's the mother church of the diocese. Um, it's like for me, like on Sunday mornings, I'll have three masses back to back to back, seven, nine, 11. Um, and it's a marathon. And it's very difficult sometimes to prayerfully enter into that 11 o'clock mass when you feel like you've repeated yourself over and over again. You know, you give the same homily and sometimes you feel like you're talking to a wall sometimes and you don't know how things are received or or you're being um, dive bombed by pigeons like I was this past Sunday, which was a that whole was nother so story. It was the worst mass ever. Um, the most memorable for sure, but I don't know how I got through that. They literally like swooped right at me. So. No, I, I know you said about like cultivating that amazement for the Eucharist. Like, was there any specific tips that he gave that like the lay people can use because I know for me myself and I my three pe my three pigeons inside of me <laughs> my 
my three brain cells, um, that I, I've struggled with this, you know, a lot because of the fact that even though I reverted back, you know, and I was raised in the faith and I grew up with devotion coming back after, you know, being introduced to the world and stuff like that, it can be very hard to believe in stuff like that because of the fact it really relies on faith and trust, you know, um, it's not something that I guess you're just automatically going to be like, oh yeah, that's Jesus. And you believe it, you might say that, but it really takes like understanding the Eucharist and things like that to, so did he give any tips on how to cultivate that for that's exactly like, what you just said? It's, it's in, and I'll, I'll phrase it specifically this way. It's understanding the mysteries we celebrate. Oh. Um, and, and the reason I say it that way is because, and this is the short way he said it, the mystery is in the history. This is this is what's called mystagogical catechesis, and this is what this is a way that Jesus taught. Um, you know, he's famous for his parables, but if you look at the other the other primary method that Jesus teaches, is by mystagogical catechesis, and what that means is that he goes back through salvation history. He goes back to the Old Testament, and look, we just celebrated. This is Valentine's Day. Currently, we're recording this um, two days ago on Sunday. Was uh, the continuation of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel, and you heard him repeat the phrase. You have heard it was said X, but mm -hmm. I say, and so that's mystagogical catechesis. When he says you have heard it was said, he's going back to something in the Old Testament. He's making allusions to these things. Um, you know, he'll say like in John 6, it, you know, it was not Moses who gave you the, your ancestors the bread, but it was my father. You know, so he's constantly going back and he's showing how he fulfills the law and the prophets, right? That's what he says um, in the gospel this past Sunday. He said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right. So the idea is that the key to understanding even the Eucharist, especially the Eucharist, the key to understanding the mystery is to look back into the Old Testament, to look at the things mm -hmm. that foreshadowed it, because the details that that are revealed there help to make a lot more sense as to what we celebrate today. And that's in the mass. You look at how much scripture is in the mass, how much of its Old Testament scripture, not per se New Testament, some of its New Testament. Um but there's a lot of Old Testament stuff in there, the, the, the way that we do things in our liturgy. And this is why I love the, you know, the work that Dr. Petrie does is because he goes back to the Jewish roots of everything. Um, and that's kind of what he's known for. He's known as the Jewish roots um, biblical scholar uh, at right. the Augustine Institute. Um, and so that's what he does. And the whole point for us was to understand what was Jesus trying to do? How was he fulfilling the Old Testament? in such a way that he's showing us the trajectory of where we're going forward now. Right. And it's interesting too, because typology, you know, the fact of like finding those parallel parallels between the old Testament and the new Testament, but also the old Testament and the mass, you know, typology is not just for the Bible. It's also for the entire Catholic faith. There's so many parallels where, you know, the foreshadowing of the Eucharist can be found in the old Testament, you know, uh, Joseph, you know, the, the, <laughs> You know, he he gave the bread of life, quote unquote, when Egypt was going through, you know, a famine. And, oh, that's um, one of my favorite stories. Yep. We love the rainbow. Co I mean, like yep. I was raised on those stories as a kid, but I feel like as an adult, you don't really understand or grasp the importance or, or the typology of, of those things. Because as a kid, you know, you, you're raised on these Bible stories and things and it's great. But, you know, as an adult, we need to really kind of I think we have a lot of holes in our understanding and our learning and our knowledge. And so because we don't have a, a, a sound foundation of what we believe, all of these mysteries are kind of a little bit rickety, so to speak. So when we have a better foundation and 
you know, the Eucharist is the pinnacle of our faith. That is why we are Catholic. And so if we understand that mystery, like you said, then everything else will kind of fall into place. Yep. And, and not just, you know, the mystagogical catechesis, but even just like paying attention to details in the scriptures and really and truly reflecting on these details. And I'll use an example he gave us. You know, he's, and this is the thing too, there's a big, and he wrote a whole chapter uh, in, a, in a big academic book on, if you look at the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, the three of them associate the last supper with a Passover meal. In John's gospel, uh, Jesus is crucified on, uh, actually at the same time that the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. So for John, the last supper is not the Passover meal proper. Um, but if you look at, at if, if what John's saying is true, you know, when you go and prepare the Passover, they take the blood of that lamb and they throw it on the altar. And because there's so many pilgrims, I think Dr. Petrie said there's at least a quarter of a million sheep that are slaughtered in that one day for the Passover to be eaten that night. He said, imagine how much blood that is that, you know, it would just, it would, it would back up like the, it would back up the drainage because it would flow out from, from, in, from the east side of the temple. Right. And then it would, uh, but in, it would, it would back up the drain so much because of that amount of blood that the priests were knee deep in blood. And then he said this, he said, imagine that like for Jesus, like Jesus, he's just the one lamb. Right. He said, but imagine how many masses have been celebrated throughout the world. How much of Jesus's blood has been consecrated at the altar? And so when you think of it that way, you're like, wow. Right. And to me, that's Eucharistic amazement is to reflect on how Jesus has taken that role now as the Passover lamb in uh, how much of his blood um, has been given, has been poured out for the forgiveness of sins, you know, right. and to say it's truly immeasurable. It's limitless that Jesus has an unlimited amount of blood to pour forth for the world. Um, and so that is how I, I feel like we really reclaim is, is really, again, by uh, intentionally meditating upon details like that to say that this is this is how the Passover was celebrated. This is how the lamb was slaughtered. Um, and to look at those details and say, this is how Jesus did all this and how meaningful that is. And it's really important because I think a lot of the times we become desensitized. I think so many people these days are just desensitized to death and suffering and dying and and things of that nature. So in a way, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but when we hear about, you know, Christ dying on the cross for us, people are like, well, people die every day type thing. I've heard that argument a lot in my generation where they're just like, okay, and like people die every day. So what? And they don't understand the deepness, the details behind the significance of Christ's death, that he didn't just die. He resurrected, you know, Everybody, I feel like, cuts it off there. They're just like, oh, well, he died for my sins. Okay. No, he also lived, you know, like he he came back. And for us to live our lives according to Christ, right, to follow God and his will, that is how we'll truly be fulfilled and we'll start to truly understand our faith. If we only go to Mass and we're only Catholics in church, but outside of church, we're not, we're never going to get there. You know, we're never going to understand that. And it's a process. It's not just something that happens overnight, but trying is what counts, you know? And if we're only willing to be Catholics in church, we're never going to have that deeper understanding or relationship with God. Yep, definitely. So it's just interesting to me, but that's, that's a great point. We love that. I mean, the Eucharist is just so amazing. And 
you know, I think back to some of what the original, you know, the first Christians, I should say, said about, you know, the, the Eucharist. And um, there was this one homily written in uh, 244 AD, I believe it was, but um, it says, you are accustomed to take part in the divine mysteries. So you know how, when you have received the body of the Lord, you reverently exercise every care, lest a particle of it fall and lest anything of consecrated gift of the consecrated gift perish. And it was a, a homily based off of Exodus 13, three. And um, it's just interesting to me because I see how disrespected and irreverent the Eucharist is handled these days. And, you know, my boyfriend, he goes to um, a quote unquote Catholic college. And uh, there was this lady who obviously probably meant well, like she didn't know herself, but during uh, communion, uh, she went up to the, um, oh my gosh, the, what is it? The, the tabernacle. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, she yeah. took out, is it called the ciborium? The, or yeah. is that? Okay. Yeah. She took it out and she started like flipping through like Jesus basically. And like, touching the ciborium and the tabernacle and it's just very irreverent you know and it doesn't cultivate this belief in the eucharist you know it just feels like she's getting crackers from the cabinet honestly <laughs> like that's what it feels like yeah. and the priest would just sit down and have the eucharistic ministers do everything um and it can be very disheartening being a young adult and and witnessing things like that because when you truly believe in christ and his presence in the eucharist and that he's the king of kings you know, there's just so many times where it's overwhelmed me how disrespected he is, you know, by people who are, who, who are Catholic, you know, it's, yeah. it can be very, dis I mean, I don't know how you would feel because you're an actual priest and you see people, I'm sure people, um, you know, some of your parishioners are that way. And um, I'm sure it's disheartening for you as well. It's just crazy. Absolutely crazy. Yep. But anyways, I guess that kind of wraps up our episode. We were talking for a while. Wow, look at that. I, I know the time tends to, it really does fly whenever we do some of these kind of off the cuff episodes. And we yeah, do. I kind of like the off the cuff episodes though, because I mean, like we're friends and like we chit chat and like, you know, we talk like almost every day and stuff, but like doing it on a podcast, I feel like it helps other people because they hear our crazy conversations and yeah I feel like we pick each other's brains when we do this which is yeah. which is cool you know uh but I think that's what needs to happen is we need more, more more Catholics more young Catholics to you know to pick each other's brains not not in an antagonistic sense but like I say in the way that we do it or you know you and I all the time is to ask each other questions to talk about things you know how, how do you think what do you feel about this what do you think about this you know it's just about uh, having conversations and I think yeah. that's a lost art today people don't know how to have conversations it's always yeah. an argument or a disagreement or something they can't just even if like I don't think we've ever disagreed on anything but even no. if we were to we would still just be like okay anyway so like you know it's just interesting <laughs> how so many people look for like a fight these days yeah yeah yeah, Definitely. but it's crazy. Well, good luck on your uh, active duty. By the time this, I will, by the time this episode airs, you won't be on active duty yet. It'll be like a month till, but, um, you know, definitely oh, remind me. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know it's crazy, but um, I'm sure my listeners will keep you in their prayers. As oh, you I appreciate it. Definitely. Yeah. But um, you have any final words for the parishioners or parishioner, parishioners, father Dan? <laughs> Um, it's like it's always been a pleasure to do this with you, and I'm hoping I can say exactly 
you know, what my schedule and work with an active dude. Hopefully, time permitting, I'll be able to keep doing this once I'm on active. But um, if not, it's a great pleasure to do this. Yeah. yeah absolutely yeah it was a great pleasure to have you on as always and we'll hope that the active duty goes well and we'll talk to you uh when you get back or you know we'll plan something i'm sure (laughs) awesome sounds good thank you all right thanks so much father dan and with all of that being said that was father dan the karate priest you should follow him on instagram um and he also has his own podcast which you guys probably hear the ad for at the beginning of mine cuz i always throw it in there because father dan's amazing um but yeah with all of that being said i hope you guys learned a little bit and this was the end of season 3 so stay tuned for season 4 coming back in august so i will talk to you guys then bye guys Thank you so much for listening to A Catholic's Perspective with me, The Religious Hippie. Make sure to visit my official website at thereligioushippie.com, and while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter to keep up to date with my latest news and offerings. You can also find me on virtually any social media site as The Religious Hippie. Thanks for listening! A quest is a search for something. And every week, the Quest podcast will show you how we know what we know through interviews with people that have incredible stories of dedication and perseverance. I'm your host, Todd Fisher. Join me in this thought-provoking and inspiring podcast of discovery. Find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please be sure to rate and review this episode. This podcast is produced by Todd Fisher and Anthony Smith and is distributed by Metacortex Publishing. This podcast is copyright. Any previously trademarked or copyright content is used by permission. Information and opinions stated in this podcast should not be construed as medical advice. Please be sure and visit the official website for Metacortex Publishing at metacortexpublishing.com or find us on social media for other unique content.